Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. dads had a great Father's Day. Um, happy summer solstice to everyone as well. Um, sun's going down here in the east. Uh, and the longest day is uh, coming to an end, but that means you know, it's a nice uh, setting to hear a few creepy stories. Um, we have a terrific show lined up for you tonight. Um, and we've had many guests like uh, Farla Ventura uh, talking about her, her uh, research into mermaids. And Celia Edgar provided us with uh, many stories from Americana, like the Loveland Frogmen. Uh, Jason Gerald's spoken about the uh, Giants. Um, associated with the uh, you know, Dean and Hopewell cultures, uh, Ken Godsword and Michael Carter have discussed UFOs in the Bible. Uh, and Joshua Cutchin is our guest tonight, and I think he'll be building on uh, all these earlier shows that you know, have uh, folklore elements to them. Uh, and I think he's going to be taking us into some new directions, uh, probably um, in the second hour of the show. You know, start slowly tying everything together. And I'm, I'm just really looking forward to tonight's discussion. Um, you know, Joshua's uh, Thieves in the Night is a book uh, I highly recommend. Uh, if you like uh, world folklore, uh, this is a terrific book for you. Um, you can learn more about 
Joshua by going to his website, joshuacutchen.com. And, you know, I'm, you know, really glad that um, our friends at the Three Beards introduced me to Joshua. And it's great to have him on the show. Um, Hi, Joshua. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, that's that's the nice flip side to it being the solstice is, you know, while I do enjoy summertime, it also signifies the slow creep back towards autumn, uh, which I yes. think we all kind of have a soft spot for, you know, even if the weather doesn't always cooperate, that's always enjoyable. So very happy to be here this evening. Yeah, t- yeah, t- uh, yeah we're glad you're here and like tomorrow's going to be, yeah, just one minute shorter and we're getting closer to the winter solstice, and and it's going to be like this time in six months going to be like dark, you know would have already been dark for like nine hours or something. Gosh, <laughs> yeah, that's I hate true. Jeez. So yeah, just it, but uh, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. Uh, learn a lot. Uh, our audience loves this uh, type of material, and you know uh, we've had. Uh, uh, like Dr. Alan Hunter as a guest talking about, you know, the Grimm brothers and, uh, you know, harrowing situations for children and these creepy villains, you know, uh, gave us all these interpretations of Hansel and Gretel and Rumpelstiltskin or a couple of more noticed or notable, uh, characters um as shakespeare's midsummer night's dream is an imaginary world of the fairies and their influence on humans um is yeah, there are some of the world's most uh pernicious myths i think both both mm-hmm. you know both the fairy lore what you find Throughout the entire world, I mean, I think a cogent argument could be made that every population, uh, regardless of where they are, has some sort of body of little people folklore where they often do mm-hmm. the same things. You know, they tend to live underground. They tend to be smaller, although generally you can shape shift. They uh, tend to be fond of abducting children, and that's the other really common thing that you see across all sorts of folklore is is that constant refrain of, you know, these things like to take children, and uh, they often leave something behind when they do. Not always, yeah. but, you know, often. Yeah, it, it's a, and, you know, you get, um, you know, the Pied Piper of Hamlin's story. Is that, you know, more sinister than uh, most people realize uh you, you know children following him where did they go you know so uh <laughs> so yeah, you know, we have a lot of interpretations to yeah. work through tonight and it, it, you know i i think uh, you know, your books full of examples from asia iceland uh native folklore uh south america i you know i think um, maybe just start with so, some of the traditional Irish, uh, uh, British Islands uh, type stories. You know, just kind of laid the foundations, and and uh, you know, we, we have a nice sized uh, you know, British and Irish uh, 
um, listening audience. Um, this is you know, for 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 them. You know, get get started with them, and, and, and we have so many samples to go through. Uh, I don't know where to go, but you know, maybe, maybe we should just start with uh, um, a you know, few British examples for our friends across the pond. Okay, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, so I guess to sort of unpack all this, and this is probably going to tread some familiar ground for folks, but I'll go ahead and start. Um, start at sort of the, the, the baseline. Um, you know, uh, our current conception of fairies uh, as these little winged women is, is relatively inaccurate from you know, a folkloric standpoint. Um, <clears throat> that really originated probably with William Blake or Henry Fuseli. Um, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not exactly when winged fairies appeared. But for the most part, the idea of them is these constantly benevolent, tiny little winged women. It isn't, doesn't really have a precedent in folklore um, where they would often be, you know, could be human-sized, but we're always, you know, absolute shapeshifters in both in terms of size and shape. And, um, you know, along with those attributes, um, as alluded to earlier, earlier, a lot of times they tended to live uh, below the ground. Um, and these are motifs that you find, like I said, literally in every... Uh, inhabited continent really um but they always seemed to really enjoy um taking people especially the most vulnerable in society like women and children um so now if we sort of shift our focus to western europe and even more specifically ireland and the british isles um you had a pretty robust tradition and belief that again was mirrored elsewhere but just focusing on this region of the idea that uh, the fairies would often take children to, um, well, for various reasons, but they would take children and in their place they would leave behind a changeling. They wouldn't always do this, but sometimes they would. Um, as to the motivations as to why they would want to take women or children, these varied. You know, sometimes if they were artists or musicians or something, they would be sort of taken as, you know, bond slaves or to provide entertainment to the faith folk. And sometimes they'd be returned, sometimes not. Um, but there is also a very common theme that you'd find where the fairies would abduct uh, vulnerable people from our population, especially children. Uh, because their own race was considered a dying race and they needed sort of a shot in the arm with some new genetic material, which coincidentally enough is the exact same motivation that a lot of people propose for the human-alien hybrids that we deal with now in uh, mm -hmm. UFO literature. Um, but So that was one possible motivation. Um, but to sort of understand some of the other motivations, we have to sort of look at what they would leave behind, that changeling that I mentioned. Um, changelings were typically, in a lot of the stories from this part of the world, um, one of uh, three things. They were either a sickly fairy baby, they were either an elderly uh, fairy that was left behind that looked like a baby, or um, they were um, some inanimate object, um, often called a stock or a fetch, oftentimes a log or a piece of wood. Um, that was cloaked in fairy glamour to appear as if it was an animate child. Um, so looking at these three possibilities, we see some of the other motivations for fairy abduction coming to light. Um, it was commonly believed that fairy food was a sham, 
you know, time and again, people are offered food in Fairyland, and mm-hmm. it turns out that it's been cloaked in glamour, and it's actually like leaves and twigs and worms, etc. Um, so to that end, uh, the milk from fairy mothers was also a sham. So there was this idea that, okay, well, I'll take the human child and I'll leave behind <laughs> one of our own so that it can actually get some actual nourishment from the human mother. Um, in the cases where there was an elderly fairy left behind in the place of the human child, um, it was almost sort of like a hospice situation for this elderly fairy to get taken care of. Um, and invariably in these changeling stories, um, the change is noticed. Again, we're not exclusively talking about children here. There are plenty of changeling stories of adults, sometimes even adult men um, being taken and replaced. Uh, but um, – there, a lot of these abductions did tend to be um, of children, and mm-hmm. invariably the the change would be noticed, and it would uh, be remarked that the child often appeared sickly, would have a small wizened face, um, might have an oversized head or oversized eyes, again, sort of shades of that hybrid lore that we see nowadays in the UFO phenomena, um, rail-thin limbs would be constantly in a sour mood, would always be wanting food, but would never put on any weight. And these stories tended to resolve themselves um, in one of two ways. Um, Either the child sort of wasted away and died. Um, There are a few examples from the historical record of changelings surviving into adulthood, although those are exceedingly rare. Um, Or uh, the changeling would be basically abused um, by 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 the mortal parents. And we can, at some point, if you want to get really dark, we can sort of dig into some of those methods. Um, but the logic behind it was the logic behind it was that uh, a if if it was you know a fairy infant or an elderly fairy that had been replaced, um, the idea was that the fairies would see one of their own kind being so horribly mistreated and would whisk in and re-exchange the human child and take their own child back. Um, but a lot of these different methods were really you know, quite uh, inhumane and were doubtlessly visited upon mortal children. So that's sort of the thumbnail sketch of what the changeling phenomena is. Um, The changeling phenomena was not specifically confined strictly to fairies. You find similar motifs with everything from, you know, Asian wild men to New World lake monsters also taking children and substituting them with changelings. So it's sort of like a hallmark of the paranormal in general. But uh, that's the majority of what Thieves in the Night looks at is is that sort of suite of phenomena surrounding uh, child abduction. Yeah. What uh can you just describe that um when the children come back it might be uh pale, have spindly arms and it you know almost kinda of sounds like uh uh you know like Tiny Tim, or you know, something out like that, kind <laughs> yeah. of uh, you know, just cla- you know, classic uh, British literature that you know, I, I'm sure all of us have read. But um, well, when they do come back, do, do they report about where they went? I mean, yeah, you do hear these stories. Um... I mean, oftentimes, so specifically if we're looking at something like uh, the abductions that happened with children, they tended to be infants. Um, this was mostly a risk that happened uh, for children between birth and baptism. Uh, that, of course, is a liminal period of life, which is between being born into the 
human world, but not being born, quote unquote, into the church. So that was always a risky time period. So obviously those children didn't really come back um, to, 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 you know, if they did come back, they didn't come back to, to share to share any stories. Um, but you would find stories about children who were abducted more generally and who would come back and would describe uh, a very pastoral scene, sometimes with famous palaces. And, uh, you know, sometimes the children would actually save themselves. There's one famous story of a child who was instructed to not drink from a uh, – who was taken to Fairyland and instructed not to drink from a, a fountain there and did and was actually returned back to, to where he was um, because he sort of violated that taboo. Um, you know, other times if you look at, uh, you know, some of the older stories or stories rather of older people who were abducted, you know, there's a story, famous, very famous Cornish story of a, of a young lady named Anne Jeffries who was uh, taken away by the fairies and she heard this, everything went dark and she heard this sound like buzzing flies and she found herself, you know, with the fairies for an extended amount of time while her, you know, physical body was, uh, if, if memory serves, while her physical body was sort of in a catatonic state here, which is a fact that, you know, raises some interesting questions about whether these things take place physically or, or metaphysically. But um, setting aside that issue, uh, Anne Jeffries exhibited one of the most common traits that people would after they returned back from these trips to Fairyland, which is that they would become, you know, either a seer or a, uh, you know, a cunning woman or, or a, even sometimes, you know, a straight up, you know, Christian priest that happens from with some children who uh, were recovered from Fairyland. So there's this idea of awakening after returning to Fairyland that uh, very much mirrors sort of the uh, – the awakening that you see in people who return from near-death experiences or even, uh, dare I say, some alien abductions as well. Okay, and the Ann Jeffries case goes back to 1645? That sounds right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, can, I can take a look here. It is page, page 122. Yes. Um yeah, it is. It is. I believe that was that. That was the date. Um, and yeah, she was in. Again, lots of times you hear Fairyland is described as being, you know, this absolute paradise with rolling hills, and sometimes the the lighting is a little bit dimmer. It's sort of a twilight like the sun. Sometimes there are these, you know, vast shimmering cities that are, or these beautiful palaces that you'll find. Um, and you know, either it's the sense that you're sort of. Uh, transported there on a whirlwind, perhaps, like, you know, something you'd see out of Wizard of Oz, or, you know, for the people who'd happen to stumble into Fairyland, they might sort of find their ways navigating some of the some of the tunnels beneath these ring forts that dot Ireland and the British Isles and just find themselves, you know, after they'd navigated themselves to the end of the tunnel, standing in this, this other land. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think as... Uh, you know, we get, go through the conversation tonight. Uh, you know, the, the, the Anne Jeffries story from you know the mid seventeenth uh, century, and it's uh, you know with uh, approaching fifty years uh, after Shakespeare would have written a Midsummer Night's Dream. But you know, I think you establish. Um, you know these stories have been around for a while, but you know you go back even farther to uh, um, 
the uh, Turkish one from the fourth century. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, so, so it, you know, the uh, if you want to get into uh, Lilith and Moloch, yeah, uh, that's uh, uh, Milton had a really uh, vicious uh, portrayal of him in Paradise Lost. Uh, you know, that would be just after the Ann Jeffries story. But it, 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 we keep seeing these same types of ideas reappearing in that you know, uh, 17th to 18th century well, uh, you know, there, time there, period. There is an argument that some people like to try to make, and, and it has some teeth. It does. Um, that uh, <clears throat> that some of these uh, newfound obsessions with child abduction vis-a-vis fairies um, were expressions of class-based fears um, that uh, perhaps, you know, members of the lower classes would try to hold children ransom in the upper classes and, and things like that. Um, these ideas also sort of blended with a lot of what was happening with exploration into Africa, there was sort of a, a a race that was on to try to find the inspiration for the fairies, and a lot of people ended up citing, you know, Congolese pygmies, which was, you know, you read some of these descriptions, and they're absolutely horrid because they're, you know, making these comparisons of literal human beings to goblins, and they're saying, oh, these were our goblins, and it's like, yeah, that's just icky. Um, but a lot of these are... Um, uh, someone who does a good job of outlining sort of the ickier side of this obsession is Carol Silver in her book, Strange and Secret Peoples, I believe it's called. Um, and she does a really good job of sort of peeling all that apart. Um, at the same time, you know, it's just it becomes really hard to say anything definitive about the faith folk. Um, you know, as uh, my friend Morgan Daimler likes to say, you know, they're they're the dead unless they're not. And they're, you know, they're. They're uh, sometimes this and sometimes not that. You know, they're 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 demoted pagan deities, except in the cases when they aren't. You know, it just seems to be a a, a big collection of of different things that, um, almost like a snowball, just tends to pick up little bits and pieces here over time. Which is you know one of the reasons why, you it's not historically indicated that fairies were little people with, you know, wings. Um, but nowadays modern fairy sightings will often have that. It's almost like the phenomena tends to pick up bits and pieces as it goes. Um, so yeah, so you had sort of mentioned Shakespeare, and it's it's interesting. Uh, Simon Young, who was a, another fairy folklorist, said that you know, prior to the rise of Theosophy in the late uh, 19th century with uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Um, a lot of these communities tended to think about fairies in that sort of uh, relationship with the dead. There are tons of stories with mm-hmm. the dead, you know, being around the departed, and tons of stories with, um, with, uh, you know, you you see time and again that a lot of these fairy hills are actually these older burial mounds. And there's an entire that's actually what my next book is about: is exploring all the relationships between our dead to these different types of entities, from fairies to the modern UFO phenomena. But I say that to say that there is also a component of this that also seems like it's perhaps dealing with something which has been with us for a long time that we've always tried to sort of reconcile, which is the idea of you know sudden infant death syndrome or just infant mortality in general. Um, you know, it's it's still a problem today, uh, and it you know, you can only imagine how much of a greater problem it was sometime in antiquity. Um so 
you know, I'm of the thinking nowadays where it can be two things at once. Like, yes, there can be something genuinely strange going on from a metaphysical perspective, but it can also be something that is, you know, as explicit or as, you know, as, as rational as like, this is a way that we're trying to cope with uh, the death of children. Looking back to those older mythologies, though, you sort of do have to start with figures like Lilith and, and Moloch if you're going to talk about uh, child abduction more broadly and not specifically the changeling folklore. And, you know, Lilith was... You know, depending on the Jewish on the Jewish uh, text you read, rather um, the version of the Jewish text. That's why I said Jewish. The version of the Jewish text that you read. Um, she's Adam's first wife, um, and she committed some sort of uh, transgression. Uh, in some versions, she refused to lie beneath Adam uh, during intercourse. But uh, whatever it was that she did, um, she was rejected, and Adam <laughs> decided to, uh, sorry, and uh, God decided to make Eve from Adam's rib. Um, and in a lot of these stories, she was sort of uh, pushed off to the margins, where she became sort of the mother of all demons. Um, there are even you know, some stories that say that uh, beings like the fairy folk were uh, the progeny of Adam and Eve, and they were so ashamed that they'd been so <laughs> busy um, that they actually hid them from God's sight, and that's why they wound up with there. But, uh, yeah, I think the earliest description of Lilith was probably in 800 BC, and she herself probably takes inspiration from a, uh, an avian-footed uh, demon named Lamash II, which had a lion head um, that was fond of stealing children both uh, – you know, both from the crib and, and from the womb, you know, sort of uh, had that ability. Um, and then you find sort of Lilith appearing in other Jewish texts like the Zohar, where she, you know, threatens to go off and take children. And uh, and then you also see this conflation that I find really interesting, which is this conflation of Lilith with, uh, you know, black cat. She could often appear as if she was a black cat. And I kind of wonder, I'm not sure if this is where it comes from. And I, I think I might have looked into it, and it isn't, but I always find it interesting. You know, you've got that old wise tale about black or about cats sucking babies' breath from the crib, and I kind of wonder if that's not somehow tied to the to the Lilith idea as well. Okay, what um, you know, we're just talking about you know uh, biblical characters like Lilith and Moloch. Um, now you did mention that uh, um, you know, the most susceptible period when the uh, children might be taken is between birth and baptism, <clears throat> and in your you know, the uh, one uh, story. You relate uh, about the Rousey changeling. Um, yeah, that uh, that's kind of a creepy one, where uh, the mom finds the the fairy and uh, wedged in a rock, and uh, she beats beats it with the Bible and gets, <laughs> gets her baby back. So yeah, you know, there we have like all all these. Uh, it, you know, biblical type stories of like was there some kind of um uh, 
confrontation between like the superstitions from you know the days of yore and the the more you know, what was becoming the more uh, uh, prevalent uh, acceptance of Christianity, um, you know, like you know, by the 18th century, you have what uh, more uh, the Methodism Methodism is uh, appearing in London. Um, you know what? You know, you find time and again this this real opposition between uh, fairies and Christianity to the extent that it kind of gets difficult to separate, you know, demonology and early demonology from a lot of this fairy folklore. Um, you know, as, as, it, it, as, it just does. It does seem like they are you know, do get enmeshed in there, and you know, different sects of Christianity are emerging around some of these uh, some of these later times we're talking about. So it it it, it is interesting to see we, you know, what recreate that time and see, you know understand what people were thinking. Right, and you know the, the reason that I think that polarization emerged was was for several reasons. Um you know if you adopt the idea that uh these that the fairies were a way, a way to conceptualize the dead. Well, that doesn't, you know, the idea of the dead roaming the earth technically wouldn't fit into uh, into some versions of Christianity, especially the early church idea, where you know you, the, the, we're all awaiting the second coming. Like, there's you know, to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord, or something along those lines. Um, but you also have to look at the idea that, well, okay, well, what if fairies were actually um, demoted pagan deities? And that is clearly the case, especially with some fairy kings and queens, which were obviously deities from this part of, you know, again, in Ireland and the British Isles. They're clear, clearly, you know, something that was once thought of as a god or a goddess. And it makes sense that in that case they would be, you know, sort of set up in opposition to Christianity. Um, Christians themselves oftentimes told the story that uh, the fairies were the beings, the angels who were, you know, involved in the war in heaven when, you know, Satan uh, uh-huh. rebelled against God. And uh, they were, you know, sometimes you'll hear that they were the ones who were too good for hell and too bad for heaven, or you'll hear the idea that, like, they were the ones who were actively engaged in fighting when the gates of heaven shut, and then they all fell to the earth, and wherever they fell was where they um, would set up shop, basically, <laughs> on earth and, you know, Hill fairies and forest fairies and water fairies, you know, wherever, wherever the angels happen to land. Um, but you've also got to look at it too from uh, the perspective of, uh, you know, the the church as it got planted um, throughout, you know, Western Europe. Um, the people who tended to speak of fairies were always these people on the marginalized sides of community. The cunning men, the cunning women, um, were the ones who were saying that they were conversing with spirits, and because of sort of the the, the uh, rigid structures that Christianity had, there wasn't really a lot of room for beings of ambivalence, you know? I mean, like, you, you, they're either demons or angels in Christianity. You mm-hmm. kind of get that dichotomy. Um, and yeah, there's the, not a lot of wiggle room, yeah. Yeah, yeah the wheat or chaff. That's, you know, one yeah, or the other. Yeah. There's no... Yeah. yeah, there's, like, what's supposedly no purgatory. There's you know, just... You know, it's one or the other... No in between. I, I don't know why Dante wrote 
uh, Purgatorio, but yeah, that's that's not my. Uh, well, I mean, you know, there there's the idea that the even there well there is even is the idea that you know the Purgatory might have grown out of an idea of of Fairyland because you find these people who are sort of in this ambivalent state of not being alive but yet not being dead and in heaven <laughs> who are seen with the fairies you know the number of the number of stories you find of people who see someone who comes back from death and says that they're a fairy or the number of times people are in fairyland and they see a dead person or the number of times people are driving by a fairy fort and they see a neighbor that had died you know 10 years earlier like those those stories are just endless throughout the literature so there seems to be some indication that maybe fairyland got conflated with per- Purgatory and maybe even to a certain degree was was an inspiration for Purgatory, even though I think the case can be better made that Fairyland resembles sort of a shamanic otherworld more than it does the idea of the the Christian Purgatory. But um, but yeah, there was this tension that really couldn't be resolved, and uh, you know I think that that idea of remembering that these you know by all appearances were slash are free agents, right? I mean, they're, they're, yes, they're malicious fairies, and yes, they're fairies that tend to be benevolent, but above all, you kind of, uh, you kind of get what you ask for, with them. you know, you, you, what you bring to the, what you bring to the interaction is kind of, uh, what you sow and what you reap. So if you're disrespectful, they tend to act negatively. And if you're respectful, you tend to maybe even, you know, reap some benefits from that. Um, but that's, again, that's not something that you, that you, find in Christianity, probably I would imagine because that implies that you have some sort of influence in the behavior of spirits, which would be awfully close to conjuration. Um, you know, the, instead, you know, Satan gets the demons and God gets the angels and never the twain shall meet. That's a good, good way to look at it. So, and we've had a few, uh, examples um of how like the Rousey uh changeling um but how you know you also provide us with other uh examples of how children were turned uh you know, let's look at a, a few <clears throat> examples uh, there. You know, what did the parents have to do to get their children back other than to uh, <clears throat> uh, 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 drive a spike <laughs> yeah. in, in the yeah. you know, rock and uh, uh, open it up and – there, there's your child and the uh, fairy. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, what are some other ways that parents were able to rescue their children from fairyland? Well, you know, there are a lot of um, different mechanisms by which you could retrieve a child and expel a changeling. And I guess the best way to talk about them is probably on a a spectrum from the innocuous to the to the darker, um, and we can sort of get into the implications of what those darker stories tell us. But uh, you know, one of the most uh, sort of lighthearted versions is that you would do something absurd, right? And this worked best if the changeling was actually an elderly fairy, 
And the idea is that you do something so absurd that in all its years, you know, a thousand years or 900 years that this fairy had lived, right, it had never seen something so absurd. So one of the most common prescriptions, and you find variations of this throughout, you know, uh, northern and western Europe, is that you would uh, pour porridge or beer into eggshells and set it by the fire. And the idea was that it would be such a peculiar sight that the fairy – the changeling, which is an elderly fairy in this case, would lean out, you know, its head outside the crib and say, "What are you doing?" And he'd say, "I'm, I'm, you know, I'm brewing beer." And it would say, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm older than the. Uh, I saw the acorn before it was an oak, but I've never seen, you know, someone trying to brew <laughs> brew beer in eggshells or something along those lines." And you find variations on this of uh, just doing something absurd to sort of coax it out and just for it to show its hand. So that's. One of the more lighthearted sort of folkloric versions, um, you know, uh, there were also things that were not quite as lighthearted, but were a little bit more, um, you know, innocuous. Um, what is it? You know, uh, 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 an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So um, mm-hmm. there is a. Uh, there is, you know, an aspect of that that maybe we can get into later. But you know, short of sh- short of actually um, discovering that you uh, sort of actually discovering that, you know, you could have done something to prevent it. You could also visit your local cunning man or cunning woman, and they would perform a ritual. Or, you know, in certain parts, I believe there was a the men in tollstones, I believe they're called. Um, I believe they're in Cornwall. They might be in Wales. So if I got that wrong, uh, please forgive me, anyone who's listening. Um, I have it right in the book. I just have it wrong in my head. Um, you could pass the children through these holes in these sort of stones and you could uh and you could actually sort of you know reverse your child um then it gets a little bit darker um from here um you have basically anything that is uh is painful to the child. And again, the idea was that you would be mistreating one of the fairies kind so roughly that they would be compelled to rush in and rescue one of their own kind. And this could be, you know, cruel but relatively simple, which would be, you know, abandoning the child or exposing it um, to the elements. That was something that was quite common. Um, To, you know, straight up literal abuse, everything from splashing urine in the face of the child to beating them with, Sticks and brooms um, to you know, uh, you know, putting their poking their feet with hot pokers or uh, cutting them or just basically anything, um, you know, literally poisoning them with foxglove. Um, and the idea was that, you know, again, this would be so traumatic that the fairies would come back. This does bring us to um, probably the most uncomfortable part of the sort of very changeling intersection, which is um, uh, infanticide, the killing of of babies, um, was shockingly common across the world in older times. Um, And 
if you couple that with the possibility that a lot of medical historians put forth, which is that at least some changeling stories are describing children who are developmentally disabled, then a, a little bit of a darker picture emerges that I think we sort of have to acknowledge because I think it's important to acknowledge it. Um, you know, no one has really been able to pin down if changelings were a way to cope with a developmental disability, exactly what condition we're talking about. Um, people have suggested Hunter syndrome and Hurler syndrome and, uh, oh, uh, there's another one that I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but um, they're, they're, they're about, you know, probably, I think probably about 11 or 12 that I go into in the book, uh -huh. um, including, including, you know, autism um, is one thing that gets trotted out nowadays as an explanation for changing stories. And when you take a look at these, what that sort of diagnosis, even if they didn't realize it was a diagnosis, what that sort of um, perception would have meant to someone who is a rural farmer in the you know, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, um, it meant that there would be another mouth to feed that probably would not contribute in any meaningful way around the farm. Um, so that meant that you would basically just kill the child. And to sort of put that in perspective, um, there's a book called A Most Diabolical Deed by a scholar named Elaine Farrell. And she looks at just the period between 1850 and 1900. And she's looking just at Ireland. And she's looking at just children who are less than three years old who were murdered. And during that period, remember, just Ireland, just 50 years, just children less than three, she found 4,645 cases of children who were murdered, um, which is just an wow. absolutely shocking statistic. Um, you know, when you consider, you know, for those of us in the States, like Ireland's kind of the size of like Indiana or something. So it's like, it's, and this is not, you know, casting aspersions on the culture in general. I mean, this sort of thing happened a lot of places and it was absolutely hard. But I think it's important to the to the memory of those people to sort of see how uh, a lot of changing lore was used to justify this behavior. Now, you know, returning to something a little bit more along the lines of what we're interested in for tonight, um, the developmental disability explanation for changelings is only a partial solution. Um, because a lot of the changelings in these stories behave in a manner that no child, developmentally disabled or otherwise, would ever behave. So, you know, and again, in those, that brewery of eggshells example that I gave, right. you know, you're, you're not going to have an infant sit up and, and speak an entire sentence, right? So that leaves us some wiggle room uh, for the possibility that, um, that there indeed uh, was something a little bit stranger going on um, than, than just a, a, a ways of justifying cruelty to children. Um, so yeah, so so the, a lot of times this um this abuse would either deliberately or accidentally kill a human mortal child. If the stories were to be believed, it would sometimes result in the return of a human child that had been taken to the fairies. However, I I would like to sort of propose another idea, um, which I don't think I quite talk about in Fees in the Night, but I talk about a good deal in my upcoming book. Um, which is the idea that maybe the abuse that was visited upon changelings might have served to induce a dissociative state uh, in these children. Um, and the reason that well, that is important... Abuse is, would do that. Right. And, and, and the reason that that particular possibility is important is because um, 
is because there are many uh, sort of scholars of the paranormal who have noticed a trend for victims of child abuse to have more often encounters, but with the paranormal. Like it seems to be not like an inviolable prerequisite for encounters with the paranormal, but definitely something that you see in a lot of these cases. And the idea is that children who are subjected to abuse are more likely to enter dissociative states and dissociative states seem to be a possible vector for encountering a lot of these other realities for lack of a better term. So the idea that I've kind of been playing with lately is that, uh, is that these children weren't taken to fairyland by fairies. They were sent to fairyland by their abusive parents who, you know, beat the snot out of them and, and made them sort of dissociate and put them in that altered state of consciousness, which seems to be, in a lot of cases, that same sort of altered uh, or other dimension, if you want to call it that, the spirit world, if you want to call it that. But you see that time and again, that dissociative roles, uh, dissociative states of, states of uh, consciousness uh, seem to play a role in contact with uh, you know near-death experiences and altered states of consciousness and shamanic initiation and things like that. Yeah, and... and it... I'm talking about where the uh, trauma would cause a dissociative uh, state. You, you do discuss uh, that uh, even though the child is um, sitting in the chair, he's mm -hmm. away. But you know he, he's there. Yeah, yeah. It, you know they could could be interpreted as you know just you know just staring out the window, fantasizing yeah. about escaping. Uh, I'm uh, really I'm really glad that you brought that up because you know it, sometimes these stories speak of you know being taken by the fairies. In fact, that was just the euphemism they used. They just say you know quote unquote taken with air quotes. Sometimes they speak of Taken being a physical abduction, but so many times um, Taken was used interchangeably for children who seemed – or children and women who just see, who were there bodily and who seemed to be in a trance or a coma or suffering right. from consumption or this or that or the other. And you know, a lot of times the um, – I think it was, it was either Lady Gregory or Lady Wilde. I can't remember which, um, but one of these uh, uh, antiquarians, these Irish antiquarians – Remarked on the fact that uh, it was, you know, it was very common among the local, the, the rural uh, Irish to to think that, oh, well, you know, this is is the changeling, and and she has actually been taken physically away, and they left this changeling who's sick in bed behind. But it seems possible to me that that we're dealing with that sort of almost like soul theft, and that you know, in the, what what a, what a shamanic culture would call soul theft, or like a spiritual abduction, and. You know, this is this is sort of supported by the fact that the, you know, in the rare in, in the occasions where someone doesn't actually go to fairyland to retrieve their child, which is another mechanism that we didn't quite cover, but with the exception of those cases, the actual return of the child is rarely observed. So you can't really say that it wasn't the same child that was just almost possessed in a way, you know, if you want to put it in, that, in those terms. But you know, there was a story about a French child who. Uh, who was uh, who was a changeling and who was restored from fairyland and he you know he there wasn't a physical child who was brought back the child just sort of regained consciousness and looked around and said oh mother I've been asleep for a really long time and it's like okay so what are we what are we really dealing with here you know are we dealing with something that is 
more on that soul basis, or is it something more on a on a physical uh, physical level? Well, uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty's lengthy sleep could be considered about the same type of uh, being dormant and mm-hmm. uh, becoming an aware adult after uh, unpleasant childhood or something. I, well, well, I mean, if I recall correctly, wasn't it a, a, a poison thorn that sent Sleeping Beauty into... What did that symbolize? Well, I mean, I, you know, you can find analogs to, to fairy thorns, which, you know, might be bits of hawthorn or even gorse that you find on these fairy uh, forts that you should never interfere with at all costs because fairies are very protective of their property. And if you interfered with one of them, you might find yourself harmed or blinded or killed or, or taken by the fairies. Um, but also um, the idea that, you know, that spirit projectiles of various types, from fairy blasts to fairy uh, to elf shot to uh, to the you know the fairy stroke. That's where our medical term stroke comes from. Um, was a means of not only um, possibly sometimes taking people to fairyland, but also lapsing them in this to this like comatose state of being taken. So that sort of poison thorn that that Sleeping Beauty uh, encounters, at least in I think the Disney version, if memory serves. Um, could be an expression of that, I think. So that's that's a, that's a very prescient observation. Yeah, and, and you know, you uh, mentioned uh, Lady Wild. Erin uh, uh, with uh, get involved with uh, another, uh, you know, uh, leading Victorian author is. Uh, Oscar Wilde, his mom Mm -hmm. was involved in uh, collecting fairy tales, and his dad was a doctor who was kind of looking at real physical cases from his patients and what looking at what previous generations may have it terms previous generations may have used uh for the diff- different illnesses and oh, mm-hmm. it, uh, you know your little section on Oscar's parents you know it kind of did did give me um perspective on Oscar, you know, Oscar's uh portrait of Dorian Gray and yeah, that's associated that's true. with yeah. death and illness as well. Illness well, of the soul. You know, it's it's interesting because I, once you start digging into you know a lot of this fairy folklore, and again, we're talking about a, a worldwide body of folklore. But when I say fairy mm-hmm. folklore, that's usually shorthand for the for Western Europe. Um, you start to find that it really has shaped um, so many of our. Uh, ideas and our bits of culture here and there. Um, you know, cobalt, the color cobalt is named after, you know, German fairies that you'd find in a mind. Cobalt, you know. <laughs> it's just little things like that are like the mm-hmm. idea and then I mentioned that stroke is a variation of fairy stroke. I did um, know that. Yeah. And and then and then just the idea that uh that um 
the, the changeling idea, which you, 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 once you see it once, you know, you see it across all sorts of horror, um, horror literature and fantasy literature and stuff. The idea of the substituted child. I mean, even something as famous as the exorcist and, you know, child possession by demons is kind of a variation on the same idea that, that whatever's lying in your bed is no longer your child. Um, but yeah, it would be it would be really interesting to have sat in on conversations between Sir William Wilde and uh, Lady Wilde <laughs> because he was he seemed to be very much of the opinion uh, that um, that a lot of these you know these euphemisms were rather a lot of these fairy terms were euphemisms for for medical terms and he was trying to sort of catalog them and I guess. Uh, we had a you know a doctor and a historian and together you put those two together and you get a, a fiction writer right <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah it would it would have been interesting to have sat in on some of those conversations. Yeah, it was some, a poet uh, too. It's a yeah, yeah. Ballad of Reading Jail. I guess I guess what I'm saying is like you get you know you get a, a scientifically minded person and you get. Uh, someone who, who's interested in nonfiction, and you put them together, and you get someone who's uh, who's more creatively inclined, I guess. Yeah. Is there a, um, a connection with the elementals? Barbara did a show with uh, Jack. Uh, that was about a year ago. Um, is yeah, yeah. So I mean, so it's 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 a it's a little bit it's a little bit convoluted, and so I'll I'll I guess I should maybe take this moment to sort of explain the way that I understand what's going on here. Um, so nobody knows what fairies were. Oftentimes they were associated with the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, theosophy rolls around, and figures like Rudolf Steiner um, sort of adopted the ideas of the Swiss. Um, the Swiss sort of esotericist Paracelsus um, and adopted his ideas, his model of elementals and sort of started applying those to um, a lot of, you know, fairy lore. So you'd have things like sylphs who were more of the air and um, undines, which were of the water, I think, (laughs) and salamanders, which were of fire and gnomes, which were of the earth. And he sort of, that's where we get a lot of these ideas of fairies being stewards of nature. Um, that's where those ideas really sort of took root and have remained to this day, where people tend to think of fairies as um, as being sort of nature spirits. Having said that, you know, I know there are some people who are saying, "Well, they are nature spirits, darn it!" And I, I, I get, I, I get that. It's it's not quite that clean cut because again, we're dealing with fairy folklore, and nothing is ever that clean cut, right? Um, so no, it's not a theosophical invention, but it's not—it's not as authentic as some people would like to have you believe. Because you can see the idea of fairies as nature elementals sort of flirted with in Shakespeare's work, um, which is obviously you know pre-Blavatsky, um, and you can also see you know allusions to it um, in the fact that a lot of these were you know genus loci and were spirits of the land who literally seem to like be inhabiting you know trees and whatnot things like dryads right which quickly became folded into fairy folklore on their own were tree spirits so the idea that they would be sort of uh the idea that they would be sort of nurturing the landscape um makes perfect sense but 
it's also interesting to see that if you think about the way that people thought about the fairies being associated with the dead, there is also an avenue that the dead could become fertility and nature spirits. I mean, it was very common to, you know, in parts of you know, Scandinavia, for example, um, to bury the skull of an ancestor beneath the field that you want to sow for the harvest because there's this idea that they sort of are serving as guardians for life to perpetuate. And even among, you know, certain what we would call animistic societies, but you know, the the classical shamanic societies of uh you know, that sort of uh, Eurasian region, um, it was very common to take someone who was a chieftain or a shaman or a warrior, someone who was really respected by the uh, by the tribe and to bury them at a very special location. And there seems to be some indication that they, you know, over time, the memory of that person as a human being would fade away and slowly get replaced with the idea of this this sort of spirit of the land that was at that specific place. So the sort of it's almost as if there's a mechanism for the human dead to sort of evolve into a nature spirit. So, again, not a lot of clear answers, but there definitely seems to be those two things that perhaps that's what Steiner was drawing on when he really codified it through that sort of Paracelsian model that has us perpetuating the idea of theories of nature spirits to this day. Okay. And, you know, just, uh, looking at, uh, my notes as you were talking about the, um, elementals and, uh, you know, that was really interesting, but, um, and it, you know, another medical uh, term that could be used to uh, have a greater understanding of what people were thinking at the time. Um, just to go back uh, uh, briefly. Uh, you know, you had a really interesting section on crib creepers and how that might be <laughs> uh, uh, related yeah. to scarlet fever and you know, uh, and you know, leading to you know, the you know, really heartbreaking cases like uh, uh, Sid's case. Mm-hmm. But 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 yeah, you know, that uh, I thought that was another. Well done section you had that uh, it, it incorporates uh, science and modern terms um, we understand, but people maybe uh, 150 years ago really didn't uh, quite understand. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know when you start. So I, I kind of just wanted to write a book about changelings because um, there wasn't really a, in my opinion, comprehensive look at the changeling phenomena that was both in print and in English. Like there's a, there's a German text called Der Wechselbalk, which was apparently like sort of the go-to text, but I'm like, okay, so let's, let's, let's look at this. 
But once you start peeling that onion, as I find every time I work on a project like this, you see, you find things that you kind of have to talk about in addition to that. So you can't just talk about changelings without talking about just supernatural child abduction in general. And you can't talk about that without talking about what I ended up dubbing, you know, the crib creepers, which are like these, these things that are seen around cribs that don't ever really take them, but they sometimes accompany children who, you know, might suffer from some sort of, uh, you know, intense fever or illness slightly there afterwards. Um, and that really is a motif that you find a lot of times where you, a nurse or something will wake up and will see, you know, a, a child. There was a um, the story that I provide in the book was that uh, King Charles I of England was apparently a very, very peevish in, uh, infant. And this was a, attributed to um, uh, one night that he was, you know, as a, as an infant, he was, he was crying. Um, and, uh, his his nurse alerted his father, King James, and then the nurse told James that she saw this um, this sort of being that was like an old man, and he threw a cloak over the child's cradle, and uh, it was almost like as if he'd you know taken the child away, but he wasn't taken away, so it's like, well, was he a changeling or not? You know, so right. um, yeah, you, you find stories like that from time to time. There's there's one that didn't make it into this book, but. Uh, a recent example, I think it was from like the 90s um, in Georgia, where there was a father who awoke in the middle of the night, um, and he saw, you know, the Hat Man, the classic Hat Man that we talk about in a lot of these paranormal uh, realms, the shadow, shadow person of the Hat Man, mm-hmm. beside his son's cradle, and as he got up, you know, the Hat Man vanished, and he was kind of freaked out, but he went to sleep, and he dreamed that his son would be shot in the head. And, uh, you know, he woke up the next morning and told his wife about it. And she was like, well, that's kind of freaky, but, you know, it's just a dream. Don't worry about it. And then a couple of days later, he was returning home from uh, work. And, uh, you know, he, he drives up to his front, uh, he drives up to his, his front yard. And there's his wife sitting, you know, with the child in the front yard, cradling his head. And he wasn't shot, but he was suffering from like, an intense, like 104 degree temperature or something like that. So, so you do find these stories still manifesting themselves, like these, these figures around children at night being sort of harbingers of some sort of dark times to come that are usually related to their health. But, uh, is the, the, the Aunt, Aunt Jeffrey's case, uh, another example of, uh, when she returned, she, uh, from her abduction that she had the special ability of um, prophesizing. Yeah, she she became quite well known more, I think for, uh, you know, a little bit of almost like in sort of a a helpful capacity. Like she was really known for like the healing touch and things like that. Um, But that's something you see time and again, like there was even, I I think there was a story that I talked about in the book um, where a mother, and I believe it was Ireland. Again, some of the details might be getting it wrong because I don't have it right pulled up right here in front of me, but um, a mother who awoke in the middle of the night and uh, tried to wake her husband after she noticed that her child was being, you know, taken across the room by the fairies who were going to take it to fairyland. And she couldn't wake up her husband, which is a motif that you see across all paranormal phenomena, but especially alien abductions where, you know, the the spouse remains asleep while the other person is abducted. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Carter's spoken about that about every time he's been a guest. Yeah, I I think it's one of those really interesting uh, undiscussed things that you see time and again. And I found that actually happening 
plenty of times in Bigfoot stories as well, um, of all things. Um, but uh, but in this particular story, you know, she actually gets she's able to get up and she wrestles the child away from uh, from the fairies, and that child grows up to be you know a, a priest. Um, and and that's you know, I know that a lot of people might not be on the same wavelength that I am in terms of a lot of these phenomena at the very least being similar, if not being the same. But I have to say that, you know, this idea of children coming back from fairyland and being seers and clairvoyants or becoming, you know, priests and holy men is very congruent with what you see in the, uh, and it's very congruent with what you see in the near death experience. Um, you know, lots of times people will come back. I mean, there are tales of atheists who become ministers after having a near-death experience. Um, and very congruent with what you find in the alien abduction experience as well. People will, you know, suddenly decide to, that they're Reiki healers, that they'll actually be healers themselves. And, you know, to, to a lesser degree, you know, obviously that's the case with shamanic initiation, right? Like that's the entire point is to make you into a holy person. Um, so it kind of makes me wonder if we're not dealing with you know sort of manifestations of the same mechanism here, just interpreted differently according to culture. And I, you know, to that end, I don't think that any culture really has a a monopoly on the truth of the matter. Like you know, is it fairies? Is it aliens? Is it uh, the spirit world? Is it uh, you know, is it is it uh, something entirely different? I don't know, but it does seem like they're all sort of describing similar phenomena for sure. When uh, Michael Carter was a guest in October, so um, yeah, you know, uh, he uh, to talk about his book Initiation. Um, uh, he, he described many of the traits um, of abductees, and you know, uh, you know this sudden interest in um, uh, stopping reading Mad Magazine and you start reading like world, you know, comparative world religion type book. Abruptly telling your wife, I'm going to leave my job in uh, as, um, you know, uh, you know, podcaster and become a minister. I, yeah. <laughs> he, uh, that's very uh, common. I mean, I yeah, it's, it's... Kathleen Martin you know, says similar things too. Uh, you know, interactions with the paranormal might actually cause people to uh, feel compelled to call on. You know, the, the uh, you know whatever you know your higher power is to ha- help you uh, if you're being uh, abducted or confronting some bad spirit. Yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of go back and forth. I think it's possible that it could be a conscious, you know, or even a subconscious like way to protect yourself from future encounters, or just you know because you're interested in these things now that you know that they're real. But sometimes I also wonder if there's not literally some sort of transformative aspect that's embedded in the experience. You know, I think of uh, 
if you look at a lot of uh, the folks who became seers in classical mythology, especially like right. you know Greek mythology, they were the ones who uh, were able to pass through the afterlife and reincarnate without drinking uh, lethe, the drink of forgetfulness. And so they were in the other world and they retained the memory of being there. And from that, they got their powers of uh, precognition and healing and wisdom. And, and that's sort of what you see in a lot of these experiences, too, is that people come back from these experiences who retain memory of it are the ones who, who tend to sort of reap those benefits, which, of course, begs the question how often these things actually happen to us and we don't remember it, I guess. Yeah, like, uh, you just mentioned the Greek philosophers, uh, you can also look at the, uh, right there at the beginning of the book of Acts, where uh, Jesus is talking to, I I don't know, Peter, you know, a couple of the uh, apostles, and then, you know, like the first or second chapter says and then our lord got uh called up to the cloud mm-hmm. i mean it, uh you know what they just witnessed you know, helped them to be you know like the seers that you just mentioned uh you know, uh that's pretty supernatural event but you know they Obviously, in the book of Acts, they're uh, uh, you know, starting a ministry is you know, kind of like what you just mentioned, you know, the new new vision, new purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's always interesting to me whenever I I talk to you know I I am a Christian myself. I, I would qualify myself as you know sort of an a Christian animist or a, or a mystic Christian or just a weirdo Christian, but um, I am, I am still a Christian myself um, with just a very robust spirit ecology worldview, I guess. Um, but uh, I always find it interesting whenever I encounter people who are, uh, you know, Christians who say that they, you know, they don't believe in the supernatural because they believe in the Bible. And it's like, well, that's the most supernatural book there is, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it really is. It really is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 uh, I think that a lot of people don't quite, quite realize that, but I, that, that's, that's my take on it. That's, yeah, it's, uh, also a super creepy and scary book. Yes. I mean, yeah, if, if, you know, that's, that's the thing that, uh, the other thing I don't think a lot of people, you know, believe is that, uh, you know, I have I actually had a, a, a friend of not a friend of mine. Uh, I had a, a family member who was uh, practicing uh, minister, Baptist minister, and um, he was working with a church in the Midwest. And he came to me and he said, "Yeah, he said we had uh, somebody came to me and uh, talked to me about their house being haunted, and uh, and he said, I, you know, I'll be I'll be darned." Um, there was something to it. Like this guy was super authentic. We went there and there was just some odd things that happened. And I looked him in the eye because, you know, this is 
Southern Baptist, you know, preacher. <laughs> not, not 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 one to not one to acknowledge the the you know the existence of hauntings or something um, right. on Earth. You know, that's not strong in the Southern Baptist tradition. And I said to him, I said, I said, yeah, I said that's the funny thing about it. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, want to look at the Bible and say. You know, a lot of metaphors in here. I said, but sometimes they're not metaphors. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's actual history. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's actual history and like, but also like that sort of spiritual warfare thing. I think we always like want to extrapolate and say that oh, it's it's the greed inside of you, or it's the evil inside of you, or it's the temptation inside of you. But no, sometimes it's quite external and quite tangible. I think. Um, you know, knock, knock on wood, I haven't encountered that firsthand too many times, but I, I do think that that's something that's out there for sure. Yeah, I, I had a uh, aunt uh, you know, visiting you know, my parents. I happened to be there, and uh, you know, she's asked me, uh, you know, what are you doing now? And I told her I work with Barbara, and she's like, oh, really? Yeah. And and she <clears throat> told her, and you can go to you know, barbaradelong.com and look at, and uh, I think she read the caption to uh, Wallace uh, when Wallace Wagner was a guest. I uh, that could give you a more precise date. And you know, his book was about base, you know, basically UFOs in the Bible, and I think she heard about a minute or. Or so of it, or she she's read the captions. You know, she's like you know, bookmarked it and you know listened to it later. And she she just looked at me and is like, "Don't you believe in God?" And, and, yeah. And I've had the same thing. And I was like, for for these you know shows, I probably read the uh, the, the Bible as much as you know <laughs> uh, you know minister preparing for. You know, a, a twenty-minute lecture on Sunday. Uh, you, you know, you wouldn't believe how much over the last two years people are, are sending us uh, books on a biblical mystery. You know, they think they have an explanation for you know, you know, you know David Brody and all the treasures from the Temple of Solomon or something like that. I wonder. I'm going back to the books and you know reading his book as well as um, you know, making sure that all that stuff is you know, is that really mentioned in there? Uh, you know, there, yeah. there is. You know, David says, uh, you know, and, you know uh, Exodus, whatever. You know, that's that's where you find it. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, you know, it's it's I, I've run into that exact same resistance myself. You know, my my folks were talking about what I do and to somebody, some sort of. And you know, they said, "Well, isn't isn't Josh a Christian?" And she's like, "Yes, I don't see why these things are mutually exclusive." Um, and you know, that's that's the irony that I run into is that a lot of the people who have that reaction, like you know, oh, I thought you were this, or I thought you believed in God, you know, even if they want to apply something that, <laughs> but they, they, you know, and it's like you do realize that the people most. I'm trying to think of a, a way to accurately and perhaps less offensively articulate this, but um. So there are a lot of people who are obsessed with, you know, burn marks in the ground and like, you know, the no. what sort of propulsion systems are on the UFOs and all that stuff. But having said that, um, most of the people that 
are in my circle of friends that um, are interested in the UFO topic, think about things like God and the meaning of life and you know these deep topics. They're deep thinkers, and they think about it more than anybody else that I know, and honestly, probably more than a lot of church-going people that I've I've, I've been around in my church life. Um, and I think it, that it's, it really is, it does them a disservice to just assume that they're, you know, living in their heads with, with sci-fi fantasies when they're actually some of the more thoughtful people that I've encountered regarding this stuff. Yeah, we, uh, and we try to be, be comprehensive on the show and, you know, just uh, at least still try to present a uh, uplifting view you know, from just a variety of points of view, but you know, I, we don't, uh, just because you talk about, uh, it's like we, we don't dwell on all these, you know, you only get one aspect of the paranormal, but you know, uh, I, there can't, can be a uh, faith-building aspect to doing these shows, if you do them right, it's like you know, sit so, so, so there and just talk about you know the scratches on my back, you know, <laughs> right, you know, right, yeah. uh, walking down the dark hallway, and uh, you know, well, it, so some of that becomes more like you know, the Cartman version of <laughs> uh, paranormal investigation. Oh, it feels hot, hot. Water running down my leg, uh, and you know they run out of the. Right. Okay, now and we just probably just lost a bunch of listeners. But... <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, so I, I think that any any endeavor like this can be your own personal alchemy if you treat it the right way, you know. Um, so it sounds like you're doing that. Sorry, folks, if we've got a little bit far <laughs> afield, but in, in my experience, these are the most meaningful conversations that you have. So I appreciate it. But yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so you know we've covered a um, lot of uh, over seventy-seven minutes of our rant. Um, I've covered a lot of Western European um, stories. Do you note that uh, Asia has some pretty similar type uh, abduction yeah. type story? You know, I, I, I'm just kind of going going to the point of. It, it, we we find these types of stories all around the world. Yeah, that's the thing that you know. A lot of times when I talk about fairy lore, I'm talking about that again. Western Europe, you know, Germany, France, Scandinavia, Ireland, and the British Isles. But you know, I just I can't. Some of the stories, for example, that you find in the New World, like, are so striking that. In, in their resemblance to old world fairy legends that either they're describing something objectively real or there's some sort of cultural contamination. And I haven't seen a super strong case for cultural contamination yet. So I, I think that there really is something that a lot of these different cultures sort of arrived at independently. But yeah, I mean, again, in Asia, um, 
there were spirits known as the the Tengu, um, which were sometimes you know this sort of half bird, half you know humanoid sort of spirit forms. Um, and you know you read these stories, and they often tend to sound like you know a lot of these uh, UFO stories or these fairy stories. So you know fairies would sometimes entice people into their dancing ring as they were dancing, you know, in the twilight. And sometimes these, uh, these Tingu, and, and there's one story that I recorded that there was a child who watched the, the Tingus dancing and something that looked like a net descended from the sky and drew itself around the dances. And from the meshes of the net shot out these flames. And, uh, the, you know, the Tingu took the child with them before dropping him, uh, back home on his, on his roof. And he was, you know, in sort of a daze when, when the priests found him. So that sounds quite a great deal, like both alien abductions and uh, and a lot of these fairy modalities as well. Okay. And um, you just mentioned, you know, this possible Asian ab- abduction. Uh, or, or, it could be interpreted as uh, an example of the UFO uh, abduction uh, from Asia. Uh, okay, you you have uh, the Zimbabwe case where there were 62 school children mm-hmm. between the ages of 5 and 12 that saw uh, a fleet of UFOs, uh, and this was only um, about thirty years ago. So yeah, I mean, yeah, this is uh, you, yeah. You know, what's uh, you know, so we just went from an abduction case to a mass sighting, uh, you know, which would you know, might be similar to uh, the Phoenix Lights case. Yeah, well, there's a new documentary out about this. I think it's called. I think it's just called Ariel, but this yeah, this is the Ariel school case uh, from rural Zimbabwe, and you've got all these children who are you know staring in the sky, looking at I think five craft or something like that, um, and there were some landings and some conversations that uh, that happened between them, um, if memory serves, um, and uh, yeah, so this isn't an example of child abduction per se, but it's it's another example of children being the ones. Uh, who are sort of the, the the focus of these beings, um, and it uh, it's such a persistent motif. You know, the idea that children are the ones who most often run into fairies, and the idea that alien abductions begin in childhood um, is just is just really fascinating to me because it just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And what I found really interesting was that um, was that uh, if you sort of adjust for our culture's uh, ideas of where adulthood is, where adulthood begins, um, it's almost as if the phenomena recontextualized its standards as well. <laughs> let me let me explain this a little bit. Um, so again, I don't think that the fairy lore is the correct reading of the phenomena. I don't think that the UFO lore is the correct reading of the phenomena. I don't know what is, but I think that they're describing the same phenomena. And I also think that whatever this phenomena is, it, um, phenomenon is, um, I think that it recontextualizes itself to keep up with our cultural expectations and appear more convincing to us, right? And 
if you look at um, when children tend to um, be abducted the most often, um, you know, as as um, alien abductees, it's you can't. This is not a hard and fast rule, but you can say that um, they tend to be. They tend to focus more on younger people with, you know, teenagers and young adults being the, the most vulnerable. And there's sort of a peak in the 20s, and they they kind of tend to decline and then drop off pretty sharply after your 40s. At least that was a trend that Eddie Bullard noticed in the 80s when he compiled his uh, his masterwork of uh, UFO abductions, Measure of a Mystery. And uh, it's interesting that if you look at sort of the modern West where we sort of place adulthood, it's kind of between 18 and 21, right? It's kind of where we've all agreed that adulthood lies. But if you looked at sort of like that same window when you were becoming an adult in the British Isles, it was between 12 and 14. Um, So in in both examples, you have this sort of window for abduction of roughly like 14 years that remains intact. You know, alien abduction seems to mostly take place between 7 and 21. Again, mostly, like that's when you have the heaviest contact. Right. And, fer- and fairy abduction was like 0 to 14, because you don't get a lot of like infant abduction stories in the UFO lore. But it seems like as the as our standards of adulthood shifted later, um, the, the time frame for uh, the time frame for the abduction by the other also shifted as well to accommodate that. And I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, uh, Hawaii had a similar mass sighting about 50 years earlier with more school students. Is that right? I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me look at it. Um, uh, yeah, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. About page 180 or so. Yeah, I think I think I do see that. Yeah, so that was um, yeah. The, I think part of the reason I didn't quite remember this was that this was a uh, this was the sighting of not necessarily UFO craft, but it was a sighting of of Minahune. Um, oh, okay. Are, uh, yeah, which were the, the people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this was again, this was about forty five children and a school superintendent, and it was from the nineteen forties, um, where they supposedly saw um, the Minahune dancing across the street. Um, you know, the Minahune are really interesting because you can draw some interesting comparisons between one of their associated spirits and uh, and some other UFO, some other phenomena that are related to UFOs like the Wild Hunt, like the Night Marchers or these sort of ancestral Polynesian warriors that are not the Minahune, but they're kind of, you know, loosely related and loosely affiliated in some way. And, and uh they have a lot of similarities that uh, sound not only like you know the trooping fairies of you know Ireland and the British Isles that are always you know wandering and marching across the landscape, but also um, you know fascinatingly enough some of the missing four on one stuff that David Pilatus talks about, where people are found you know with their clothes off, face down. Well, that was the way to protect yourself from the night marchers was to strip naked and in in the you know make yourself humble before before them if you happen to encounter them in the in the in the late evening. But also, um in in a in a strange echo, and it's one of those things like why does why does this similarity exist? Um, the night marchers were often preceded by uh another spirit that would tell people 
you know, to watch out that the night marches were coming and that you had best make way. And you see that exact same thing in uh, some German legends about the wild hunt, you know, the ride of Odin or the ride of the dead that would sort of tear across Europe. There would be this character called the Eckhart, which was sort of a maybe a guy who was trapped in purgatory or a spirit himself, but he would do the same thing. He would say, you know, make way, you know, go inside, the wild hunt's about to come. So it's an interesting, that herald, the idea of the herald that precedes it is, is interesting. And then from there, you can draw comparisons to, you know, between the wild hunt and, and UFOs as well. Okay, and uh, um, another example I um uh, mentioned at the beginning and I did want to come back uh or uh, uh before we have about 35 33 minutes left um but I I just didn't want to forget it I I I thought it was a really interesting case of um an early um UFO documentation uh, was the uh, Saint Onifris from the fourth century Egypt, and, and yeah, that that one's about con- uh, contemporary with um, the uh, Turkish. Uh, one of the earliest ones you have in, in your book. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. And we sort of, I sort of got distracted by the. By something else, I didn't mention the Turkish one, but yeah, the, the Turkish abduction that you're referring to is um, there was uh, there was a historian by the name of Nisiphorus um, who uh, reported that just after this gigantic earthquake um, in Constantinople, um, they had gathered into the countryside for prayer, and supposedly this child, this was like 1600 years ago, this child was pulled straight up into the air and then was returned back to earth uh, just as quickly as it had been taken up. And this was supposedly the work of, of angels, but uh, it, you know, sounds very similar to some poltergeist infestations from the early 18th century um, where children would be sort of dangled in midair in front of witnesses um, as well. Now the uh, St. Onufrius uh, legend was uh that um, it sort of it speaks to the fact that again these children when they return are oftentimes sort of given um, special abilities or they're sort of set on the path to become a uh, a holy person. Um, so Saint Onufrius was a kind of fourth century hermit. Um, Predominantly in the Roman and Eastern Catholic churches, you'll find him today. Um, but uh, he was supposedly the son of a pagan ruler, or who was the son of a of a nomad chief, um, who was born while his father was away at war. And once uh, he, he returned, he decided to test his child's legitimacy using fire. Like this. some people say, this is actually where. <laughs> It may or may not be, but like where the term trial by fire comes from, right? Oh, right, um, okay. So he, he decided to see if he could burn the child, and if the child – he decided that – for whatever reason, he decided that if the child was his, it wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be burned, and his child uh, survived. So there's some, there's some changing themes that you'll find in there. Um, but, you know, you'll also find uh, some changing themes with other uh, saints as well who are, were supposedly, uh, you know – 
taken and returned or, you know, or, you know, you, you, you find this in, in other saints stories as well. Oh, it, it, and it, it, there's the, uh, St. Gwynefort, the, Oh, the, St. Gwynefort. Yes. Yeah, this is a great, yeah. this is a great I, story. And, I like that. While, while we're talking yeah. about saints, I was like, oh, it, you know, it, it, we got to talk about that one. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. There's this, there's this sort of strange preoccupation that, um, Catholicism has with Sinocephalic saints. Um, you'll find, uh, for example, St. Christopher sometimes has a dog head, and, and St. Yeah. it is probably an expression of that same belief. And the reason that St. Gynefort is sort of germane to the conversation of changelings and whatnot is uh, because he, and he was a dog, <laughs> um, was actually uh, called upon to help with... Uh, you know, in ma- as a as a means of magic to retrieve your child if it was taken away by by the fairies. Um, but the Saint Gynefort legend, um, which you'll find somebody I heard on a podcast mentioned this exact same story by a different name, and I can't remember the name of it. But it's 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 a story that you'll hear a couple different places. But in this version, it is from France, and uh, I believe it's near near the Chalaron River is where this story originated. I think. Um, but it's a knight came home, uh, and he finds, you know, the nursery is just absolutely torn apart and his infant cannot be found anywhere, but the, his dog, his faithful dog, Gynefort has a, has its muzzle bloody and he is enraged and he kills the dog because he's assumed that the dog has killed his child, right? And as it turns out, he, uh, finds that the child has been, uh, hidden underneath the crib and a dead snake is beside the crib as well. So he actually killed the dog that defended, defended and saved his child. So in some stories it's, you know, it's a, it's a fee for something that had entered the home. Um, but uh, supposedly in this story, he erected a shrine to kind fort. And ever since the 13th century, the dog became something of a folk saint, not an officially canonized saint within the church, but a folk saint. And, uh, along with that sort of extra um, power uh, to the laity, um, Gynefort could also restore uh, changelings. So if someone found that their fair, their child had been abducted by the fairies and the changeling had been put in its place, you could offer Gynefort salt at the uh, site of the shrine. You could hang the child's clothes on some bushes, drive a needle into a tree, which might speak to the fairy fear of iron. Um then pass the changeling between two specific tree chunks, toss it in the air nine times between a mother and a magic woman, um, and then asking uh, the fairies to bring it back. And then you'd lay the changeling uh, near near a tree and light two candles. It was a whole it was a whole ordeal, as you can tell. Light two candles and wait for uh, it to burn, and then you know, then you dunk it in the river nine times, and you've got your child back. Um, and again, that's one of the that's one of the more benevolent ways to restore your child if, if you suspect a changeling is involved. Yeah, with, um, you know, just getting uh, your child back in the example you just concluded, um, you know, we spoke a little bit about the changes that, that, yeah. You know, the children or experiencers um, have after the event 
Um, but how much do these changes in children seem to uh, correspond with uh, traits of the indigo children? Well, I think that – so I have this idea that I play with, and um, I think that uh, – I think that it's, it's a kind of an interesting way to look at some of these phenomena. Um, so in his book that has been a, a large um, influence upon me uh, called uh, Demonic Reality, Patrick Harper mentions that uh, the fairies – because you have these stories of the exodus of the fairies, but you know they're always leaving because Christianity is driving them out or scientific revolution is driving them out, and the fairies are leaving. And the fa- in Patrick Harper says, you know, the fairies are always leaving, leaving, but never gone. And meanwhile, you know, ufologists assure us that the aliens are always coming, coming, but they're never here. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, that's not only an elegant poetic statement, sort of showing how the two phenomena express the same ideas in different ways, but you could also sort of apply that same principle that it's the same idea, but sort of inverted um, to other aspects that are shared between the phenomena. And the example that I like to use, if anybody out there is a musician, um, because I'm a classically trained musician myself, is that if you have two pitches, a concert A sounding above a concert C, that's a major sixth. But if you invert that relationship and have the uh, the C sounding above the A, well, that's a minor third. And these are not um, fungible intervals. Like They're not the same interval, speaking in terms of music theory, but they have the same components. So that's what I use as sort of a, a metaphor to say that inversion sometimes means representation, by which I mean that like something can be the exact opposite of something, but still be an expression of the same ideas. And I think that indigo children or star children um, can be, um, you know, a, a sort of an inversion of, of of those ideas. And what I mean by saying that is number one. Um, in sort of a one-to-one comparison that you can make, these ideas of indigo and star children um, correspond quite closely to uh, to you know human fairy hybrids, which you would find throughout different folklore, where you know uh, the fairies would decide to seduce a human being and their offspring would be precocious and extremely intelligent and passionate and difficult to be around, but also incredibly artistically gifted. I mean, these are the same parameters that you find, you know, in descriptions of indigo children. So there's that one-to-one comparison you can make, right? Okay. Um, But then there's also, there's also that inverted comparison that you can make, which is this idea that there is a stranger in your home that may not be yours, and they're great, you know, <laughs> and, they, and they're, you know, they're super functional and they're super healthy and quite the opposite of changelings. But the other thing is that, you know, looking at the indigo children or especially the star children more specifically, because they're, they're kind of the same. They're practically the same, but there are some differences you can make. Um, you know, star children are oftentimes perceived of as at least in part hybridized, in which case the human mother and father with whom they live are the imposters, right? So that's that's a 
I think that's mm. like a clearer sort of inversion equals representation thing. Like there's the sensation that they have sometimes that like, oh, these aren't my real parents that I'm living with. My real parents are in the other world. So yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a little bit of flipping the concept on its head, but I think it still speaks to the same themes of alienation and whatnot. Okay. And I don't want to, um, forget to include, uh, you know, your research into native folklore as well. You know, you, know, you do have, uh, a uh, YouTube uh, video of a visit to a uh, mound on your website. And mm, that's right. Yeah. 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 And, and I just wanted uh, you know work uh, work that in. Uh, you have the uh, uh, Beaver Woman example uh, from. Yeah, I think that was from Montana. Yeah, that kind of sounds uh, similar to the uh, mermaid, uh, you know, Western European mm-hmm. mermaid stories. So, um, it, you know, I, you know get, give you some time and talk about your interests there with, uh, you know, the fascinating uh, native folklore because we, you know, our, our audience really enjoys those topics as well. Oh, you know, I absolutely love it, too. I was speaking with someone the other day and saying that, uh, you know, once you realize, once you see that there is some sort of affiliation, and I don't know how deep or how profound or how consistent it is, but once you see that there's some sort of affiliation between these topics and a lot of these uh, indigenous sites in in America, um, it really does sort of re-enchant the landscape around you because you're never you're never very far from one of these sites. I mean, it's America is a haunted house in that respect, to sort of paraphrase Peter Lavenda. Um, but uh, speaking to this, these specific examples, and I'll sort of circle back around to my interest in the mounds here in a little bit. Um, yeah, the beaver women were in, in you know, this specific lake in Montana, and according to Blackfoot lore, they were, you know, the top half woman, uh, bottom half hairy like a beaver and they would sort of sing to women to to drag them uh down into the depth so again it's that idea of like you said the mermaids but also you know the greek sirens as well Mm -hmm. um but but they'd also take children um to uh to raise as their own under underwater um and you know lots of times you see uh in in you know european folklore that boys were sometimes favored um as the ones who were abducted uh, again, that speaks to you know sort of the values of the culture at the time, um, but the the beaver woman tended to appreciate uh, young girls a little bit more um, for whatever reason. And then you have things like uh, you know I find it really interesting. Um, you know you have little people legends uh, throughout the United States in indigenous lore, but the Southeast is where you really find these incredibly strong correlations between uh, little people and the things that you would see from the old world. One example from the area where I grew up were the Catawba Indians. Um, used to talk about the Yehasuri, who were these wild Indians who would you know, run, run around through the woods at night. And they were short. They lived underground. They ate garbage. <laughs> they braided horses' manes. Like these are all things that you could, you know, find 
in fairy lore endorse it, right? In England, you know, it's the exact same thing. And they love to abduct children. And, um, you know, uh, you know, sometimes there are stories that, uh, that these children will disappear for a week at a time. And there was actually a, an, a, an informant who spoke with an uh, ethnographer in, you know, in living memory who uh, claimed that uh, he had been taken to a stump um, uh, by the Yehasuri into the woods, and they had sucked all the blood out of his arm and, you know, I suppose replaced it. And he, uh, this was his brother who had said to have it too, and his, his brother returned with special abilities, and he could become basically a, a medicine man for the tribe. So again, we see these these themes that you see in like you know shamanic initiation of dismemberment or some sort of disfigurement at the hands of these other beings that leads to enlightenment and the ability to do things. Um, and you know where I live now, um, in Georgia, there are uh, lots of roots to uh, the Cherokee uh, before they were forcibly evicted, and uh, they always spoke of the Nunyanahi who. Uh, I would I, I think a good case could be made that the Nunyanahi are the strongest analog that we have in the new world to old world fairy traditions. And the main reason that I say that is because on top of all the other similarities you find elsewhere, you also have a strong um abiding relationship between the Nunyanahi and uh the mounds that are here, this part of the world. Um which you know are often burial mounds, so it's like a, it's a really a one-to-one comparison that you can make between them and, and you know some of the some of the fairies from Ireland, the British Isles, and uh, yeah, so I make it a point to sort of do a little bit of a video whenever I stumble across one of these sites. Um, I did a video when I went to Ireland that you know there's some stuff I learned since then that I would sort of amend and change about what I said in that video, but um. The videos that I have from uh, recent years, because the Ireland one was back in like 2018 or something. Um, but in recent years, uh, um, I actually in the past year, I could say, um, I visited Fort Mountain, Georgia, which is the site of the Moon-Eyed People, which is sort of its own thing. But if you look at it from the right perspective, it really does sound like it's, again, yet another expression of these fairy motifs. Um, but also the Nikwasi Mound, which is in Franklin, North Carolina. It's sort of the far western tip of the state. And uh, it's got these two real charming stories. Um, and it's kind of sad because, you know, I've read about Nikwasi all this time and you go there today and it's it's not quite in an industrial park, but it's like definitely sandwiched between two busy thoroughfares and there's like, you know, some industrial buildings around and it's like, oh, this is not as, you know, <laughs> as idyllic as I thought it might be. Um, but it is it is to to the town's credit, it is preserved and uh Franklin is is very much um it's a it's a it's a lovely little town and it's right there in the heart of not only Cherokee uh Cherokee uh, land, but also, uh, you know, it's 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 the exact same area where you find a lot of these Nunyanahi stories. And there was a story that the uh, that the Nunyanahi uh, were sort of called upon by the Cherokee, and they poured out of the mound to oh. to to sort of join the ranks of the Cherokee to fight against uh, some invaders. Again, something that is like straight out of you know 
Irish stories, right? <laughs> the idea yep. that they would actually come out of the mound. And then that same story, apparently, and again, I haven't really stumbled across any accounts of this, but you see this story referenced often, that uh, that same scenario repeated itself during the American Civil War when Union forces were approaching and the town was poorly defended, so the Nanyanahi all poured out of the mound again to set up on the corners of Franklin and make it appear as if the town was well defended and the Union bypassed the city. That's the story that that goes um so yeah it's it, it's it's really yeah i just i I love that uh the nanyanahi stuff especially um it's, it's just such a close match again that again we're either dealing with an objective reality or cultural contamination and from what i've seen it's 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 the former rather than the latter yeah well it, it, it uh, you know the Native dead coming out of the mound. I, I, I actually kind of sounds like uh, uh, you know the King Arthur legend with the, you know the once and future king and you know. Oh, absolutely. I yeah, mean, yeah. It, it, yeah. There's and it, you know since we're talking about uh, Georgia, I, you know Richard Thornton's been a guest with us a couple times. I don't know if you uh, know Richard, but. Uh, it, you know, we did the show about uh, all these uh, Georgia mound sites and Cherokee villages, and you know, looking at all the word connections that made uh, links with uh, Central America. It's um, you know, so you know, just really interesting in, information that uh, you and Richard have discussed with us. Yeah, I, I think that you know, it's. I, I go into this a little bit in my newer book, but uh, it's really interesting that you can find, uh, you know, all these all this older stuff, and and it's. It's become sort of passe to talk about window areas in regard to, you know, Indian burial grounds, right? And some people even go so far as to say that it's offensive, and I I, I understand that. But at the same time, I think there's something to the idea that these uh, particular sites were often built upon places of power and might have components besides, you know, the interment of bodies, but actual components that were incorporated into these sites to sort of serve as – Supernatural attractors. I think it's entirely possible um, if you yeah, look at they, sort of a tradition. Yeah. yeah. Were they built on ley lines? Uh, well, you know, not only ley lines, but you look at sort of like the the strata that you find in these. You can find this both in the old world and the new world. Um, you know, a lot of times it's you know organic material, inorganic material, organic material, inorganic material, and people like Andrew Collins have, have talked about how um, this seems to be very similar to something like an orgone generator, you know, those the means of collecting, you know, earth energy that Wilhelm Reich sort of developed. So the idea is that, you know, and again, like, you know, when Reich was working with orgone energy, he found that he was attracting UFOs. So it's like, is there something to that concept as well manifesting? So, but yeah, also the ley line idea as well, which again brings us back to <laughs> everything's connected, I'm telling you. Ley lines bring us back to the wild hunt that I was mentioning earlier and also some mm-hmm. of those those late, uh, I believe, 1960s ideas that of uh, Ami Michel, where he talked about orthotony and the idea of the great circles along which you know UFOs always traveled, which seemed to sort of line up with ley lines. So it's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, John Keel uh, 
proposed that theory. I think it was in As, Trojan Horse. Yeah, I think it was. Well, in, it, it's yeah. also in the Mothman prophecies, mm-hmm. where he he was kind of looking at positioning of mounds in the Point Pleasant area and uh, as well as uh, up and down the Ohio River Valley and mm-hmm. you know, were they on some type of ley line uh, it, 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 it's a little difficult to be certain about it because so many have been destroyed we don't know exactly where right. they stood but exactly. he was he was writing about that in relation to whatever the mothman was doing you know whatever his point right. yeah you know it's interesting because i'm you know there are a lot of people who like to 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 bash on keel and i am far from that i'm 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 a pretty staunch uh, supporter of, of Keel while still acknowledging some of his problems. But I will say something that's always bothered me about his, his uh, window area definition is that, you know, he said, you know, each state boasts anywhere between two and 10 window areas. And, you know, it's usually a 200 mile circle, you know, from an archeological site at its center. And I'm thinking to myself, man, when you're on the East coast, like that's just a daisy chain of, of window areas all the way up, you know. If you're talking about major, you know, archaeological centers with with a 200 mile radius, like well, it's just it's just one giant window area. So sometimes it seems a little bit nonspecific, but I still think that there's something to it that he and I still think it was a very prescient observation that he made. Absolutely. Yeah, he 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 uh, seemed to be on onto something. Uh, we may not understand it as well as the people 2,000 years ago, but um, he he was – I think he was accurate. Yeah, I, I still think there's a lot of power to it um, or a lot of power to the idea. Again, while still acknowledging the fact that, you know, as I said, like America's kind of a haunted house in its own way. Like, you know, every everybody's died somewhere, right? You know. Yeah. No, and uh, let's see what. I we're down to about uh, seven minutes left. Um, you, you know, Joshua, you have some upcoming appearances. It looks like. Um, Oh yes, yeah. I, I, if if that'll be okay, I'd, I'd love to to share a little yeah. bit more about them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. So the first, this is you know, after sort of being in whatever <laughs> twenty twenty was, you know, um, cooped up for two years, yeah, exactly. Two and a half years. Yeah, uh, conferences are now finally back. So the first um, of these. Uh, will be taking place in uh, in Missouri, in Cape Girardeau, and that is the weekend of August 5th through 7th, um, and it's called the Midwest Conference on the Unknown. If you just Google that, you should find it. I believe the website is uh, is Cape Events, cape-events.com, um, and I'll be giving a, a, a talk there, and it's an absolute, like, 
knockout roster of people. Um, Micah Hanks, Ryan Sprague, Ken Gerhard, Steve Ward, Zach Bales, Courtney Block, Margie Kay, Michael Huntington, Joel Rhodes, and myself. So it's like just I'm just I'm just happy to be included in those people. So that sounds like it's going to be a great time. It's actually going to be a really big conference with vendor tables and the whole nine yards. Um, and it looks like there's going to be a lot of time to just hang out, which is always the fun part of these conferences. Um, then also on a little bit more of the low key side, um, the following weekend. August 11th through 14th in Franklin Grove, Illinois, I'll be attending the annual meeting of the Worldwide Metaphysical Tribe, um, and I'll be doing a talk on uh, Weird Bigfoot. Um, and it looks it's, it's going to be a couple of days. It's at this retreat in uh, in Illinois, and it's just it just looks like a great time. And we're going to do a CE5 and try to call down some UFOs. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, I will be at DragonCon here in Atlanta. I'm not entirely sure in what capacity, so just uh, check out the website. But that's September 1st through September 5th, 2022. I again, I just I don't know. I think they have a paranormal Q and A track sort of thing. Um, but uh, I've you know I've been submitting. I'm like, hey, you know, it's right around the corner. I'd like to come to DragonCon. And this year they were finally like, yes. So uh, so I'll, that'll be that too. So I would love to see some folks uh, there. Yeah, absolutely. In any of these places. Okay. I hope uh, get lots of people sitting in the seats and then enjoying the uh, speakers. Steve is one of the best. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we have him coming up at the end of August um, to discuss the upcoming Mothman Festival. Steve Steve is uh, just terrific. He does a great job at all the Mothman. He's a regular at those. Um, Ken Gerhard, uh, he's tops as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to meeting Steve. Yeah, great. And uh, well, I mean, I'm Ken, and you know, I know Micah, and I've never met Ryan. So it's just, yeah, I mean, that 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 uh, conference in Missouri is is going to be. I mean, that just I saw that my name up in that company, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, so well, that's a compliment. Yeah, I was I was very I was very uh, very honored for sure. Uh, okay, and you have a new book coming out, uh, Fairy Films. Yeah. Oh, the fi- well, I've, I've I've actually got, depending on the way you look at it, three or four, three to five books coming out. Um, uh, I have, um, or yeah, I guess three three to four books coming out. Um, so there's the Fairy Films book, which is a collection of essays about how fairy lore have manifested itself in um, different f- films, obviously fairy films, um, where I'm ed- uh, editor and contributor of one of the essays, but the other essays are just absolutely fantastic, and they're talking about how fairy lore creeps into a lot of different movies in both uh, subtle and not-so-subtle ways. And then sometime, I should imagine, in the next month, um, knock on wood, again, no idea when the release date of Fairy Films is, but we'll see. Um, but sometime in the next month, um, I should be releasing my two-parter uh, called Ecology of Souls and the Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. It's a two-part book with a third companion book, which contains some appendices that will be available uh, for purchase as well, or it will also be available as a free download from my website um, because it's primarily just a book of references. But uh, but yeah, so I've got 
a lot of things happening soon, but all the dates are vague, <laughs> with the exception of the conferences, which are which are nailed down. Okay, cool. So, you know, um, sounds like you've been very busy during all the lockdowns. I find a, a lot of author or our regular authors have done the same thing, you know, letting us know, hey, got a second book of the year. Uh, yeah, 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 coming out. Uh, can, can you help promote it? Uh, well, it was it was it was nice because the other the other thing that I do is I'm, I'm a musician, and there was no um, you know there was obviously no live music happening uh, right in 2020 and most of 2021. So it was nice to have something else that I could focus on during that time. And now it seems like music's coming back. So yeah, just real busy these days. Yep. Okay. Well, we're, Joshua, I think we're. Uh, under a minute left, and I, I just wanted to second to thank you for a, a fantastic show, and uh, we'll have to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on here. Okay, Pre- appreciate it. I, it, I, it was j- just a fantastic evening. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Barbara, for producing the show, and uh, I think Barbara will see you uh, with Solaris on Sunday. Take care, everyone.